was in Florida last week, but still got the podcast out and celebrating 39 years of the best thing that ever happened to me, meeting and marrying and having kids with Lorraine Jivoff. And boy, am I grateful. Uh, don't always listen to her the way I should, but man, am I grateful. Have so much to be grateful for. The business, Voice Locket, taken off like a big old rocket. Look at voicelocket.com. Got uh, Did an interview this week, doing some more filming this weekend about something I'll tell you about more. Getting more into the founder story next week. Uh, one individual and his story and how it intersects with his great passion, his great calling, and a great service to the planet. That's voicelocket.com. And also going to Nashville, the tail end of next week, Vanderbilt University, my alma mater. Took me six years to graduate, crammed four years into six, but they're honoring me by inducting me into the Vanderbilt University Student Media Hall of Fame and meeting a lot of great fellow Commodores over there, uh, really in high cotton. So lots of great stuff happening for me. And in the meantime, never missing a beat with the podcast. And this week, talking to a woman that I met through the squad, our business networking group that Lauren Widrick founded, uh, this woman talking about humanity, being genuine, like being a genuinely kind person in the area of human resources, human relations, HR, injecting humanity back into it. Karen Weeks. Is it that you're literally miserable and you're crying to work every day? Like that is not worth whatever you think you're getting out of your day job. This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com. Featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there. Karen Weeks is on this week's In Her Words. And she is a wonderful person. Came out of theater, really came alive in theater. And just could relate to all different kinds of people. Kind of the victim of mean girls in middle school, but then got to a different school and really blossomed. You'll hear about that and learn how to relate to all kinds of people and has been a very practical help. And I have a little bit of an attitude based on some past experiences with HR departments, which have not always been positive. You'll hear a little of that come out in this week's episode. She's a good sport, and she takes it in stride, turns it around, and gives me a lesson. Karen Weeks. Where were you born? I was born in Keene, New Hampshire. It is in the southwest corner, so it's right on the Vermont border and close to the Massachusetts border. Are, did you grow up there? We were there through the third grade, and then we moved to a town called North Andover, Mass., uh, which is sort of the North Shore area of Massachusetts, just above Boston. Right. Did you go to high school there? I did. I went Actually, I went to Pingree, which is a private school in the North Shore area, but it was in that same area. What kind of a private school? 
So it was just a day school, um, but middle school was really, really tough for me. Uh, this was, thank God, pre-social media, but just the pressures of wearing the right things and being in the right groups and doing the right things, I did not thrive at all. And thank goodness my parents had the means and the foresight to see that because I went to them. I said, I hate school. I hate everything about it. Uh, high school was going to be this very open concept high school. And I just knew I would not do well there. And so they helped me find Pingree and it really helped me become who I was to be all honest. Was it a Quaker school? Nope. Just good old fashioned day school, day private school. Um, no affiliations to anything, just, um, you know, a little elite, <laughs> did um, you, but did you thrive there? Did you, I did. So it was classrooms of maybe 15 people at the most, most were like 10. Um, you got to take, you know, art was a required class at various, uh, years. You had to take all these different kinds of history classes, but one of the history classes was the history of the Holocaust and the impact that had through the rest of history or, just World War II or like all these very different sort of approaches to it versus American history year, 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 which, you know, doesn't just fills you with a bunch of dates, not an understanding of what happened. Um, you were required to do athletics after school. So you had to be involved with different communities. We had volunteer requirements. So it really sort of rounded you out as a human, but also helped you think more holistically about things. Favorite class in high school. Like, what did you gravitate toward? And you just yeah. like, I would read more of that. It definitely was my theater and music classes for sure. Um, I That's where, you know, my dad actually always did community theater. He was always in bands. So I grew up around it. And high school, we started actually taking classes. I tried different instruments, none of which I was good at. But, you know, I just got to be more immersed in lots of different things. And so I really found myself gravitating more and more towards that, but ironically not as an actor. So I was a stage manager. So I loved all the behind the scenes, behind the scenes stuff, bringing people together to help create this amazing production. So if I could have just lived in the theater building all day, I would have been thrilled. It's interesting. I think it's the first time where you really see me shine as me. So I'm not hiding behind something. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I'm loving everything I'm doing. We're working on really hard pieces at times. Like we did some really uh, deep, dramatic pieces. And you just really see me leaning into all of that and not being more reserved and shy. So before getting to Pingree, I was very happy not being seen by anybody. Because if I was seen, then something, someone could say something or whatever. So I was very much hiding. And I think at Pingree is the first time you really see me step up. Were there boys and girls there? Yes. Yeah. And um, when you came forth to this person that you liked and yeah. leaned into, what kind of person was Karen? I was very thoughtful of others. So I was someone who could be friends with a lot of different people. So even though we were small school, you had all the clicks that you were used to. And so I think that sort of allowed me to kind of be more general in my different friend groups. I was someone who really had deep, deep friendships with some of those people, um, people who I still stay in touch with to this day. 
So I think I was very sort of loyal, not in a blind way, but very loyal and supportive and loving. I, it was where I started to see where friends are family as well. Like family is not just blood. It's the people that you build these relationships with. And so you really sort of saw that more caring and outreach and supportive and adaptable personality come through. Privileged? Yes. Thank you. Um, Absolutely. The notion of compassion and getting along with different people serves you well. I keep hearing, you know, knowing that you're in HR and deal with human <laughs> beings and deal all day long on the Zoom with human beings that I hear that. Yeah. I hear the seeds of that. Yes. The, the ability to understand that you can't talk to everyone on the team the same way. Yes. Yes. Well, and I think that's, you know, one of the, when I started to make the transition from theater into HR, and I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but it was one of the things that I loved was bringing people together to have a shared experience, but taking something away from it that was unique for them. So as a stage manager, once the show is live, I'm the one behind the scenes, making sure the light cues happen, the actors are on stage, everything happens very seamlessly. So as an audience that you can enjoy it, but I always wanted to be in live theater because every night was different and people were taking away different things from it every night. Where'd you go to school? A school called Elon, which is in North Carolina. Oh, wow. What brought you all the way down here? There's a, there's a name we know that not yes. the, the whole world doesn't know. Yeah. So I wanted, to, as much as I love New England, I very much was a homebody and I sort of wanted to challenge myself because if I didn't go away to school, I kind of probably never would leave. So I had a great aunt and uncle that was in Raleigh. So I had some tether if I needed it. And then otherwise I just explored small liberal arts schools in North Carolina. So I did Elon Wake, Guilford, like that whole swing. And Elon was absolutely the place for me. You recently lived in New York City. How did you get back up north into New York City from a small place, small school, small town to huge? How did you get back up there? Well, it's really funny because we actually, once we graduated, we got married almost immediately after we graduated or after my husband graduated. And um, we then went out to LA. So we were in Hollywood for two years, hated it. <laughs> so were you that, trying to do Hollywoody things? Oh yeah. Yeah. So he worked for a producer and I worked for a talent agent. So oh. we were, we were in the thick of Hollywood. Well, what'd you hate about it? Um, this, it sounds very stereotypical, but it is very much, what can you do for me? Like what, what, what leverage can you give me? What role can you give me? What job can you give me? And it just was not our personalities. I think, especially we were so young, we didn't know anybody. We were on the opposite side of the world compared to everybody we did know. Um, so it just was not the right fit. It, I've always wondered if we went back now, what it would be like, but it just was not the right fit for us back then. And Hollywood itself wasn't right for us. So in other words, transactional, not a yes. human relationship, not yeah. a real relationship, but just everything's about what, what can you do for me? Absolutely. And you need to be at certain restaurant and you had to wear certain clothes, but you're paying me literally zero. So like, how can I afford those things? And yet it's expected of me. So yeah, very, very transactional. And again, talking about having the right people in your life, the talent agent I happened to work for was also a former stage manager. So he took a risk on me because he knew I would get it because he got it. And he was so kind and so supportive especially because we were so far apart. We were out there for 9-11 and we didn't know how our family was back East. And so he was just so kind. And I, at least I had him 
um, amongst, you know, other bosses that I saw in the agency that would not have been the right fit for me. Maybe it's the Zoom, but you don't seem old enough to have been out there <laughs> in your early 20s. So that means if I'm yep. doing the math right, you're in your 40s. Yes, 45. Wow. That's, and it's neat. You guys have stuck together yeah. through all this, yep. uh, through all these. And so what took you from LA to New York? So actually we did a layover in Boston. We were in Boston for several years. My husband ran a theater company there for a while because he stayed in the arts. Like and that's a regional actually, or rep? Yeah, or it a... was more of a sort of a startup of theater, like a fringe theater. And they did original works. Some wow. of which, yeah, some of which he wrote, some of which would be like the world premiere of something from a, another local writer. And so we did that for a while. That's actually when I then moved into HR. So after Hollywood, I was done. I was like, I don't like the life of a stage manager because you never know where you're going to li be literally. I hated Hollywood and the business side of it. So that's when I sort of did the self-reflection of, well, what the heck am I going to do then? And a lot of people helped me understand, well, maybe it's HR. And just, if you like working with people and like helping people, maybe HR is the right place. And I absolutely fell in love with it for all the reasons that we've been talking about so far. So I have to say, when you say HR, I get a little bit of a chill up my spine <laughs> because in HR, I have to say, honestly, I met yeah. some of the warmest, most encouraging people. And I also met absolute hatchet people yes. um, yeah. who were strictly brought in to just do what the boss wanted to do and lop off heads. You yeah. know, they were strictly there to reduce head count. So how do you keep your humanity in HR? Yeah. That's an excellent yeah. question, I think. It's, it's an excellent question. And I think part of it is absolutely the philosophy of the company. You know, there, I was very fortunate to choose companies that put humans first. And again, this was before anyone ever like talked about culture and those sort of things, but you can only hit your business goals if you have the right team in place because the right team is building the product. The right team is putting the product together, whether it's like an assembly line or whatever, they're dealing with the customers, they're selling it. You know, So at the end of the day, it's the people that are making it happen. And when you recognize that that is what's going to get you to your business goals, then yeah, I've had to make tough decisions. I've had to lay off people. I've had to let people go, but it was because to move the business forward. And honestly, it was right for them, even if they couldn't see it in that moment. And, and on the, how do people, what are the range of reactions you got? I mean, I've absolutely had people cuss at me and yell at me and like, how could you do this to me? And this isn't fair. But I think if you handle it with the utmost respect and calm in the moment, they may not like it in the moment, but they'll get through it on the other side. And I've had people reach back out to me and say, you know, cause you're on LinkedIn or whatever and be like, Hey, like, I didn't love it at the time, but I then found this amazing job. And I wouldn't have found that if I hadn't been let go or if I hadn't learned that lesson in my career. So I'm still I think, trying to go maybe in the next lifetime, I'll get to that. Yeah. Karen. I mean, it's, it, it's not fair. I mean, look, there, there are companies that don't do it right. And I have absolutely made mistakes in my life and let someone go not in the best way. And I just hope that I did it right enough of the time or that they sort of, whether I never talk to them again, they forgive me for maybe not doing it the best way possible. But I think if you try to put the human in front of you in the center of every decision that you do, most of the time you'll do it in a respectful and thoughtful way and they'll be okay on the other side, even if they don't feel it in that moment. Well, help me, uh, help me through some therapy here. Yeah. Karen, a short circuit this. Yeah. What I objected to was, um, 
I didn't feel like people would be candid with me. Mm. Uh, like if they would simply say, like they couldn't bring themselves to say, listen, we can hire someone for a lot less money than we're paying you. Um, and we have to really look at the budget, which yeah. was the absolute reason. If they'd have said that, like months and months ahead of them outright firing me, yeah. but it is the facade of a, well, we have to put you on an improvement uh, track. Yes. Or we have to, like the dreaded improvement yep. track. Like, yep. why don't you just say, you're going to fire me in three months or six yes. months or whatever. Why don't you just yeah. give me the dignity of saying that and that gives me three months or six months of certitude to yep. say, okay, I have this fixed amount of time. I need to find something else. And they are not going to recommend me. Yeah. Like there is no improvement. And, and the way I knew that was there was no metric. Yes. They could offer no metric. Yeah. So how's there going to be an improvement when you can't tell me what the metric yeah. is? That is one of my biggest pushes when managers come to me and either say, I need to let someone go or it's not working out. I need to put them on a performance improvement plan. Like, so how are they going to improve? If you're going to let them go, no matter what, what, what's the improvement? Like it bothers me to my core. And so I have worked with managers on what, okay, let's be honest. What is this transition plan? Or if they're struggling so hard, say, I'm willing to help you through this, but it's going to be hard. I don't know if you're going to make it let's check in in a month or whatever and see if we've been doing it. And if not, we'll have another conversation and maybe we can create an off ramp for you or having honest conversation about this role has evolved. Like we don't need someone at your level or we need someone with a different background. And then again, let's talk about what that off ramp looks like. Um, because exactly to your point, if you aren't candid and honest and respectful with people, this is how they feel on the other side. And look, you may still have been disappointed and pissed and all the things because you were being let go, but at least you would have understood the why versus this false, oh, but if you hit this and hit this, then maybe, and then you still end up getting fired. You're like, when well, what was the point of all that hard work? I could have used that time to find another job. Okay. Since you are now outside of the beast, yeah. <laughs> uh, corporate America, um, here's some real news you can use. Top five ways you know it's time to to get out of the whole corporate enterprise yeah. and become an entrepreneur yourself. How do you know that? Yeah, it's a great question. And by the way, I still am the head of HR at a company oh, while, okay. I, while I also do some coaching on the side. So I sort of have my, my toes in both pools. And I think the biggest thing that I talk to folks about, or honestly, I talk to founders about, so forget about if they're clients of mine, there are former employees that have left the startup and that I've worked at before or are currently working at to start their own thing. And I have that conversation about when do you know it's time to go? And so there's a couple of different things. One, the obvious, like, can you find or financially, are you ready to do it? Because you want to make sure that this is an exciting time for you, not a scary time. And then I think the bigger thing is around what brings you joy. Where well, do you I'm going to put? I'm going to push back. Yeah. It's okay. always it's always scary. It's always scary. I don't care if you have two million dollars in cash in the bank. Yes, it's scary. So I would agree with that, but I would say it's a lot scarier if you've got ten dollars in the bank versus two million. So I think yeah. what? Let me rephrase that. What do you feel comfortable when you walk away? Like, what is your safety net? What is your cushion? Um, and some people will say, I don't need one. Actually having no cushion makes me more focused. 
Well, I'm going to, I'm going to argue with you again. Yeah. I, I, I was absolutely forced into it. Sure. And thank God. Yeah. Because I never would have summoned the courage yeah. on my own. And that's why my firing was a wonderful thing. Yeah. And I also, I'm encouraging people who are abjectly miserable mm -hmm. in the corporate world that I was in, it, it's killing them. It's actually yeah. driving yeah. them to an early grave and they can't even see it because the stress level is excruciating. Yeah. They're watching an industry which is com contracting, yeah. some would say imploding, and they just cannot let it go. They can't get into the lifeboat. Yeah. And uh, so how do you now that you're you put your coach hat on? Yeah. How do you coach that person that really could do this and has every opportunity to sail off into the sunset, but they just can't seem to pry their hands yeah. loose from like the health insurance, the 401k, the, the, the certitude, the safety. Yeah. Well, and I think you bring up a good point too, is that there are different personas, right? Like when you asked me that question, I thought of one persona and you had another persona in mind. So that's another great example of like thinking about the person that you're talking about, what's important to them. Cause you and I both went different places with that question. So I think that the person that you just described, helping them understand the give and take of what they're losing by staying in a toxic environment or not being able to let go. Yes, you've maybe have the stability this second, but if the last few years have shown us anything, there is no stability in this economy. A pandemic can hit, you know, inflation can hit, whatever's going on. So what, how can you replicate that? Or how can you get to a point where you feel comfortable enough letting go of some of that stability you have today, knowing it may not be there? So look, there's, you may not have a 401k, but can you start a Roth and have it be, um, you know, an employer supplemental Roth or something like that? So like do the research to figure out how to handle those things and then go back to what's important to you. If, is it your mental health? Is it impacting your family and your relationships? Is it that you're literally miserable and you're crying to work every day? Like that is not worth whatever you think you're getting out of your day job. And then give yourself a timeline, say for the next six months, I'm going to do this or the next three months or the next year or whatever timeline you feel comfortable and then check in with yourself. These were some goals that I had. How does it feel? Am I enjoying it? And then kind of keep doing those check-ins back and forth and going back to what is important to me. How will I know if this is working or not? But I think there's even more people selling themselves short. Oh, a hundred percent. And even like test it out, put yourself on like Upwork or something, or like take on a client or work on a prototype or like figure out what are those things that, you know, could maybe let you test the waters. There are some people, let's be frank, who their worry that it doesn't allow them to yes. kind of go into free fall. And a hundred percent, you know, and, and, but there's also the, I heard a guy who became a restaurateur. You know, he became a small business owner and he was worried, 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 worried. And then he stepped into his restaurant. This, I believe, was in Charleston, mm. South Carolina. And all of a sudden he was like, oh, my God, this is really going to work. Yeah. And, you know, talk about a risky enterprise yeah. to open a restaurant, but it actually worked. And someone told him, listen, if you fail and you close the doors, 
you're not going to die. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be living in the streets. Yeah. You know, it's like bankruptcy of a business, even personal bankruptcy does not equal death. Mm-hmm. No, not anymore. You're not yeah. going to go to the pauper's prison. Yeah. It just means you're going to hit another hard reset. And, well, and, and I, people don't, re- people don't realize that. Yeah. Well, and I think too, also realizing you don't have to do it on your own. Like if you have a tingling that maybe you want to start something on your own, whether it's, you know, employing yourself out of corporate, doing it on the side, whatever, find a support group to help you through it. Both literally people that can help you like set up your LLC or like do all the things, um, an accountability buddy, an inspirational mentor, a business coach, like surround yourself with people that are going to be energizing and supportive and help you navigate that and help you see the pros and cons. Talk to the people in your life that you care most about who see how much you're being drained by the life you're in or how energized you get by the idea of something and surround yourself with the people that are going to support you through that. And you just hit on your secret sauce, which is one of the biggest myths. And that is, I have to be an expert salesperson. Mm. I have to make the damn thing, whatever it is. And I have to be the administrator. So I have to know CPA level accounting, and I have to be a master salesperson. And all I really want to do is make pickles, you know, (laughs) and I just love pickles. Why can't I just make the pickles? You know, and you're like, dude, if you make great pickles, what, what Karen Weeks teaches is you can hire the accountant yes. and the sales and marketing team yeah. if you make good enough pickles. Yeah. Like those well, guys will help you. Exactly. Well, I mean, think about, I think people think about companies with teams and 50, 100,000 people or whatever. You can start replicating that today, whether that is you outsource it to a CPA you you know find a part-time virtual assistant or in-person assistant you find um you know someone a person on upwork that does social media posts like you don't have to build out all these full-time people just find the people that can best support you on this journey so that you can focus on what you're good at just like a founder who's got a startup of 20 people has, you know, an engineer and I come from tech. So I always make a tech reference, but you know, an engineer, a marketing person and a salesperson, that founder isn't always doing it all by themselves. Well, one of my biggest learnings in my career was I was the training manager at a tech company and I was in the first time in a role to build out new manager training. And I was so excited about this role. And so I like locked myself in a corner, did all this work for six months, emerged from the corner and said, look at everything I just built. And everybody is like, well, what about this? And what about this? And how are we going to do this? And I had all this feedback, rightfully so. So if you focus on sitting in a corner and building out the right name, the right brand, the right everything, you don't even know if you've got customers who are going to want it. So don't think like a product manager, like do some user research, test out some things, do a pilot, learn from it, adjust, change your go-to-market, like whatever you have to do and learn along the way. You'll you'll get yourself stuck and not get any feedback if you just sort of figure it all out up front. And I think that adaptability is so key, whether as an entrepreneur, or honestly, even as you think about you know, riding the waves of a job in a company that's not yours, right? Like you have to, again, figure out what's important to you and how do you navigate some of those waves? 
Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol. Use as directed and keep out of reach of children. I only talk to women for Mm. this podcast. How are women who are thinking about making the leap different than men? What are the fears that women have that men might not have and vice versa? Generalizing, I would say two things. One, I think imposter syndrome tends to be higher in women. I see it in women leaders and women who are navigating their career paths, as well as women who are thinking about making the jump into entrepreneurship of, do I really have this? Do I really have something that someone wants? What makes me special? You know, do I deserve to be in that room? Like those sort of conversations. I think the other thing too, is whether you are a parent or not. So we decided not to have kids. I still have some of that. I have to be responsible and I have to be the one like taking care of things. And so can I either carve out the time to do something or can I take the risk to do something? And so that um, risk analysis may be a little bit stronger in women, whether they're literally taking care of family and home, or there's just something inside of us that feels like we're supposed to take care of everybody else and not what we need. And so I think those are some things that might stand out. Okay. I'm going to ask you something personal. Where will dinner come from here in the next hour? (laughs) Um, so I actually am the one that usually cooks. And do you Uh, usually order out or cook or we, during the week, we usually cook. Um, we, especially now that we live in Charlotte, where we can actually go grocery shopping for the whole week. Um, because in New York, you can't do that because you're lugging it home. Um, we plan our meals for the week and then by Friday and Saturday and Sunday, it's a little TBD and we'll either eat out or order in or do something easy. But during the week we tend to cook. What's for dinner tonight? <laughs> tonight, we are doing chimichangas with ground turkey. <laughs> you are doing that. Yes. <laughs> Does he like this? Yeah. And I think it's one of those things of we really have figured out both what we like to do. I actually like to cook. I really do. During the week, I want to keep it simple, but I do like to cook. Maybe that's part of the nurturing piece, even uh, as I've helped other humans in their lives. And so I really want, I like the cooking for me. It's also now that we work from home, it's also almost like my transition from work to not work is I cook and I listen to a baseball game or I listen to the news or I listen to music. And that sort of like helps me make that transition. What's your baseball team? It's the Boston Red Sox. If you grow Uh, up in the Boston area, you can't let go of any of that. I mean, they're, they're, they're like the all of new England. Yes. Yes. Like that, you can tell, I just lived in New York for twelve years because I was ready to apologize, and I don't think people <laughs> <of> Charlotte care. <laughs> no, I, I would have had a bigger problem if you said the Mets. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I read it recently in a book that couples argue more often about the washing of dishes or the not washing of them mm-hmm. or the correct that even then they talk about money, like That's they talk so- about it more often. Than they do. Yeah. So 
Um, do you have a dishwasher in your home? We do. Okay. Do you pre-wash or not pre-wash? I am not good at pre-washing. My husband is better at pre-washing. Does, do, do you believe you should have to pre-wash? Because my wife says you shouldn't even have to pre-wash. Yes. You should just put it in the dishwasher. Just scrape it off and throw it in the dishwasher. That's what it's there for. I'm like a rinser. Like you right. got to get like some of the big stuff off. But yes. yeah, that's the point of the dishwasher. Otherwise, I'll just wash it. Okay. Are there ever dishes in the sink when you go down there? Um, so I love my husband very, very much. This is <laughs> <laughs> had to preface that we're going to keep that in. This, we'll this cut is, that part out. <laughs> this is where we get to a moment. Um, he has a tendency to just leave them next to the sink. And I'm like, just rinse them and put them in the dishwasher. It's right there. <laughs> this conversation will go on in our house <laughs> probably tonight. <laughs> you know, it will go, you multiply that conversation by about you know, 50 or a hundred million and you have, <laughs> and, and, and knowing this, we know what the flashpoint is. Yeah. The secret to a happy marriage is so simple. Just <laughs> understand who does what when it comes to dishes and just what the expectation yeah. is. And then, then you'll be married 50, 70 years. Yeah. Forget uh, about the kid conversation have the dishes conversation. Oh, it's dating. not about money. It's not about sex. <laughs> it's all about the dishes. <laughs> you heard it here first. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's what women, women, number one thing, imposter syndrome. Yeah. You also coach men, correct? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Cause you've offered me some helpful tips <laughs> for absolutely free. Um, <laughs> so what are men's main concerns if they're going to make the leap? I think for them, it really comes to, again, like some of this is innate in, I don't know, years of evolution or lack of it maybe is, you know, the, the stability of the breadwinner, the like, can I take a risk? And again, even if you don't have a family, when my husband started his theater company, he was like, yeah, but as a man, I'm supposed to have like a steady income or whatever. I'm like, no, you're not. You're an artist. It's fine. But I think there's something sort of innate there is like, I'm supposed to be the stable one, bringing the stable income into a, into a household, whatever that household looks like. Yeah. Um, is, do you think it's true that men uh, invest their sense of identity in their title more, more than women do? That's a great question. I think that is changing more and more as newer generations are entering the workforce and having families and the division of household responsibilities. Like my brother's a stay-at-home dad. And so I think more and more that's evolving, but I think probably at their core, it's the case. And I think partially because we still so often ask the question, so what do you do? You know, we just moved to a new neighborhood. Everybody here is lovely, but everybody asks, so what do you do? That's, that's uh, a question where in much of the world, if not most of the world, it's considered extremely offensive. Mm. to lead with that it's mm -hmm. almost like walking up to someone and saying how much money do you make yeah yeah and that's why when people say yeah. how much money do you make if they say well i make let's say one hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars well if you're in manhattan mm -hmm. good luck finding a decent yes. place to live yeah but if you're in cookville tennessee you know yeah well and honestly that's why we made the move was that 
um, when we realized our landlord was selling our apartment and we looked at our options in New York, the prices were just astronomical. And whether we literally could find what we were looking for or like philosophically, I was just not going to pay above a certain amount because I just couldn't like fathom it. When we started to consider other places and we knew a ton of people down here in Charlotte and we started to look at what we could get for our money, it was like, of course, we're going to make the move. We have space. I can be on this phone call with you and my husband can be in his studio recording and we don't hear each other. The dog has a backyard. Like, How do we not make that decision at this point in our lives based on what we need today versus where we were a few years ago? You remember yeah. when you and I first spoke, I said, what did you see out the window? Yes. And you said you could see a little bit of the financial district. Yeah. Because <laughs> you were in Brooklyn, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and here, what do you see? I see trees and lawn and people walking by their dogs. Well, it's also funny too, because I'm on the first floor because I'm in a house, which is, which is also very weird because I'm used to being at least five stories up. Yes. <laughs> Well, Karen Weeks, welcome back to North Carolina. Thank you. <laughs> it's so nice to be say. here. It's so <laughs> nice to be here. No, yeah. we're really thrilled. And, you know, but talking about remote work, you know, I wouldn't, we wouldn't have been able to make this choice uh, if the company on that still had, if the company where I'm the head of HR didn't go to remote during the pandemic. We were totally a New York focused company three years ago. I know another woman who works in consulting. At a actually marketing at a major accounting firm, one mm. of the big used to be eight, then it's five, and pretty soon it's yeah. just going to be one monolith, <laughs> Amazon that <laughs> owns the whole world. And um, she said her team during the first year of COVID, um, they kept like a Slack or even mm. a Zoom call open, so it was just like they were in the open office plan, yeah. and they were all sitting productivity went up some ridiculous amount, like 30% yeah. for her, for her team. Yeah. And they were each in their own little home. They could talk to each other over the mm -hmm. whatever, whenever they wanted to, nobody abused it and went yeah. yammering. That's just unbelievable. It me. is. I mean, I, I know not every company has stayed there, but what it has taught us about how we can work and literally where we can work, you know, there's pros and cons, right? Like I also know people have a hard time placing boundaries and like all the, the things that are part of that conversation. But for those of whom are thriving in remote work, there are plenty of companies that are staying that way. And so you really can find the opportunity to continue to make it work for you if it does. Yeah, the flip side is I have a buddy who works for, one of the big banks, you can guess which one. <laughs> and he said, nobody believes in banker's hours anymore. Yeah, They think they can call you in at four in the morning or at eight in the evening or whatever. And they just yeah. think that you're just sitting around waiting for yes. their email <laughs> yeah. to come in. <laughs> it's not, not like you're watching Netflix yeah. with your wife, you yes. know? Yes. I was just talking to someone before our call whose like office area is at the end of their family room. And he said he has to be really careful about like turning off the computer because otherwise while the family is watching TV, he can kind of sneak on and do a couple of things, but then he's setting the ex expectation that they can reach him at night. And so he's had to work very, very hard on his boundaries. Also, corporate America has had a serious shockwave and that is millennials, Gen Z, and a whole bunch of other people have discovered, you know what? I don't have to put up with a boss who's verbally yeah. abusive all the time. I don't have to live in a miserable place with a miserable corporate culture. 
there's a lot of people who want me out there. Yes. Well, and I think that was the most amazing thing during the pandemic was when I, cause that's, I started taking some clients on the side right before that. And I thought for sure it was going to shut it down, but actually I saw an uptick in people looking for coaching because they wanted to find, how do I find the company that's right for me? Because I don't want to be at companies that don't treat us right. And then on the flip side, as I was hiring at order groove, I was having candidates ask me some really tough questions because they now understood what culture meant. You know, whether you're on the candidate side or the company side, you need to be able to define what you stand for and candidates are not messing around now. So as I coach people to look for a new job or as I'm hiring people, I hear it. You know, how did you handle the pandemic? How did you handle Black Lives Matter? How have you handled being you know more stability in inflation? How did you handle a really nasty environmental environment during politics? Like they're now asking those kind how do you handle burnout? These are real questions that candidates care about now. Um so how do you handle the culture wars um, that have spilled over into politics? Yeah, I have tried really hard to remind people that the way we interact with each other at work are based on the values at your company and to live those values and to not talk about other personal things because really good people can believe different things. But if you have respect for each other, you're focused on problem solving, you're collaborative, you believe in the mission of a company, that's what's bringing you together in that moment. It's okay if you have other differences and leave those other differences to the side. Um, You mentioned being a kind person. That's the word I would use in high school, that that Mm. came out, that you cared about a variety of different people. that kindness manifests as basic respect yes. for, for one another. And uh, I hear being the parent of three millennials and a Gen mm. Z, I hear a startling amount of prejudice and ageism working mm. the other way hmm. toward millennial generation. Yeah. And specifically around like work ethic. Yeah. And I'm like, millennials work plenty hard. I mean, I need to introduce you to my kids because they work way beyond 40 hours, you know, and, and they care about what it is they do, but they also very much want to have a personal life. And they also (laughs) don't want to be doing work. They are not being paid for. Yeah. And that's just standing up for yourself. Well, and it's also recognizing they're doing this in a world that was not, that didn't exist back when my, you know, my dad left the office at six or whatever. And he left because he didn't have a a social media device. He didn't have a laptop. He didn't have any of those things. I remember twice a year he would do inventory. So on Saturdays, he'd have to go into the office. And then the other quarters, he had to bring these huge reams of like printed out paper home with him because he had to do some sort of audit or something. But that was all he could bring home or do because none of this technology existed. So maybe millennials and like all those, you know, difficult generations, you know, I'm putting that in quotes, are actually just trying to learn how to have the same boundaries that other generations had in a world where there are no boundaries. Um, And they don't have pensions to keep them at a job they hate. Like it's just a whole new work world that they're trying to navigate. And I think we need to give them a little bit of space to do that. I don't know why we pick on them so much. Yeah. My, my pet peeve is when big corporations 
refer to their tens and tens of thousands of employees as family. Oh, no. Because <laughs> I had that happen to me. <laughs> I was like, note, I am not your family. Like, I have a family. I yes. know what that is. And, yes. and you are not it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, community, team, all of that I'm fine with. No, fa- well, and family's also this like drink of the Kool-Aid thing. No, I hate that too. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived was this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? I really hope it is that I helped people enjoy their lives more. So whether that's my friends and family that I spend time with, whether that is employees at companies I've been a part of and helped them feel successful and joyful at work, whether that's clients I work with to help them find success in their careers, all our animals that we adopt. Like, I just want people to live their best lives. And I hope that I'm a part of helping them do that. You think that kindness came from your personality and your DNA, or do you think it was something about what your mom and dad did? Was it some sort of something about the culture? Where do you think your kindness came from? I'm sure it's all of the above. Like there are things about me that I don't care if I was six months old or 45, they're the same. So clearly there's something in some of our DNA, but I definitely think, you know, my mom was a teacher um, and my grandmother lived with us to help raise us. My dad was very present. um, And when he did theater, like he tried to involve us in it. But I also think that part of it is just inside of us to begin with. It just has to maybe be supported and nurtured as it comes out. Karen Weeks, I wish you, your husband, your pets, all the best <laughs> in being Carolinians again. Thank you. And We're so excited to be wonderful. here. wonderful. And I'm going to pick your brain later on. Yes. I'm going to finally get to uh, benefit from some of that wisdom. Yeah. Absolutely. It was so wonderful talking with you. And we'll meet in person sometime too. As you heard her say, Karen Weeks is still the HR officer for a small tech startup. Probably not so small anymore. At least they need an HR officer. (laughs) And she's also doing coaching now. From her new home in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome, Karen. And you can find her on the interwebs at Karen D. Weeks. Middle initial D. Karen with a K, D. Weeks. Thank you so very, very much. I appreciate your time. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Katherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for man listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. I am a hugely grateful person, and I'm grateful to you and for you, everyone who's listened to In Her Words, supported manlistening.com, voice lock at all my ventures from the very beginning. Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.